Today in the Marshall Pruitt Podcast, we have your Week in IndyCar listener Q&A episode brought to you by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, TorontoMotorsports.com, and Bell Racing Helmets USA. You might hear I have a little bit of a smile on my face, and it's not just because we crossed over the 5 million download threshold uh, Sunday afternoon, late Sunday afternoon. I was actually on the phone with my pal Davey Hart from Texas Motor Speedway when that happened, so thank you to everyone for making that just crazy thing possible. I mean, the the quick little insider thing is for the first year, year and a half of the podcast, it didn't do a lot of downloads. I mean, we were still in the letting people know it existed See if anyone wanted to listen mode. So really, uh, think about that 5 million download number and how really, although the show kicked off in May of 2016, really traffic didn't start rolling until the beginning, kind of end of 2017, but by and large, the beginning of 2018. So just thank you again. Uh, I feel so stupidly humble. That's a bad assembly of words but just thank you i mean i don't know what else to say i'm a guy who loves doing this podcasting thing who fell in love with digital audio editing in the very early 90s and used to spend a ton of time capturing audio samples music samples you name it and just doing stuff back then for my own amusement and here I am with the little podcast, and y'all have put up 5 million downloads slash streams, so just crazy. Thank you. I'm smiling more than anything because I got to be like what I am for the first time in many months, which is a person who either reports on a race, analyzes a race, does something that is real and not kind of sort of made up, which if I look back at the last three months, whatever it's been since the Corolla virus done arrived, you know, come up with a lot of things, many things on a daily basis to create and offer. This is the first thing that has felt like real work since probably January with the Rolex 24 Daytona coverage. So, yeah, the genuine pleasure to watch and write about the Genesis 300 Saturday night. And based on the volume of questions you all have sent in, I'm going to do my best to make this episode no longer than two hours, but maybe not a big surprise that in reaction to the first proper race of the year, y'all have sent in a heck of a bunch of questions. So going to get through those as quickly as I can while honoring and respecting the time you've taken to fire those in. Last couple of quick notes before we get rolling here. Uh, also mentioned, um, I think on the social medias, that what yesterday the 7th was the i guess one year anniversary of my wife coming home from the hospital uh, from our first stay last year which didn't last very long we turned right around pretty quickly and went back for uh what four or five months straight long time um 
And so had a number uh, of folks say, hey, can you give us an update on your wife? And I uh, did that a little more in depth, I think late in May. But for those who have asked, and there were a surprising number of you kindly who did, just share that we're continuing to make progress. We are in this gaining inches of ground compared to yards in the fight against cancer. And she is just, it's a weird thing to say about your wife, but she is a beast in that regard. She is just unrelenting in her spirit, in her commitment to pushing herself uh, through physical rehabilitation. Some of you may know we have faced a very, very serious mobility challenge. That's the term she's asked me to use mobility challenge for almost a year now uh yeah it's been i guess a little over 11 months now and so she has been making incredible progress there and that's through uh, her work at home and also going to very tailored specific physical therapy to uh, that's designed the whole organization is designed specifically to work with folks facing mobility issues uh, and then we have our uh, weekly chemotherapy fighting breast cancer. And so, yeah, we did our routine today of going to physical therapy, coming home, well, coming back to the area where we live afterwards, going in and doing the weekly blood draw. So they then take a look at all of the million different factors and counts and what's high, what's low, what's what within her blood, which acts as a roadmap as to whether she is capable of receiving chemotherapy uh, or not each week, and also helping the oncologist to tailor how much of the particular various cocktails that uh, she is injected with every week. And so came home after that, and we were both exhausted because we haven't been sleeping a lot lately. We were trying to figure that out this morning, why her answer is a little easier. Chemotherapy, really, uh, of the many side effects, one of them is uh, she rarely gets a chance to sleep more than an hour or two straight. I'll just pause that for a second. So we're now almost eight months straight through with chemo. Could you imagine for the better part of eight months not being able to sleep more than one to two hours in a row before the effects of that chemotherapy uh, works within your body and wakes you up for eight months straight? So yeah, when I say my wife is a beast, it is not of the physical description but of the mental and spiritual and just soul side of her she is just insane in that regard and then we have the cancer side as well and we continue to make good progress there would just say that to close on the fighting cancer side we're coming up the end of august it'll be two years we've been in this fight and also with this 
significant mobility challenge that arose late June 2019. We have not had any setbacks of late. It's all been forward progress. But this, as I said, it's gaining inches, not yards. And so that's the mindset we are just in constantly of there's no real relief. There's no like, hey, it's better, or hey, there's a good stretch where everything's good. It's absolutely keep your head down, keep pounding, and we're going to get there eventually. We know that. We just don't know when. So that's the uh, that's the update there. There's one thing I wanted to mention before we start your Q&A. That is looking at what has come forth over the last week, specifically the last week, in regards to IndyCar drivers, NASCAR drivers, some teams, some series. It's been interesting, to say the least, to look at the interest shown by some who've never weighed in, never spoken, never declared their position on racism, on the well-known ills and effects and bigotry and brutality aimed at African Americans and just say people of color in general in this country. Now that we have a week, now that we have a week of context, I'll be putting this up here Monday night, knowing that Tuesday, it'll be one week since the Blackout Tuesday hashtag campaign started with seemingly everybody I know uh, throwing up black squares on their social media platforms to show. Actually, there's no real answer to the what it shows because it truly individual. Uh, there's no blanket. This is in support of Black Lives Matters or matter. I should say it's singular, not plural, which I think I continue to get wrong last week and now as well. Um, yeah, there's no real blanket anything that can be said. Everyone's feelings, motivations, and what it was in support of would not want to assume. Just tell you that looking back now over the past week, I have been more impressed by those who have done the thing that I was hoping would happen and take greater action and not fall prey to the belief that posting statements or posting black squares, that was job done. It's been pretty cool, and I have to admit the NASCAR drivers have really, really surprised me in the leadership role they've taken. I read, I think my man Jeff Gluck wrote, uh, that Jimmy Johnson, not the series, not anyone else, but Jimmy Johnson was the person who led the NASCAR drivers to assemble for the video of support and unity uh, that came out here, uh, what was it, Sunday? It's a pretty powerful thing. Uh, only thing I wish they'd done was not lead off with Bubba Wallace in that video because asking the black athlete to be the face, the f- first face, the main voice, whatever, in times like these... That's not the thing that we need. But nonetheless, I was really impressed to see that effort. 
share something here as I'm drinking coffee at 7.57 p.m. on a Monday night, which is not a very good thing. Um, We'll share something here super quickly, and it's not as if it matters or means anything, but I'm just sharing it here, not on social media, and would ask um, it to be treated as such. I am writing a piece that is based on a real and genuine daydream that I had. And I think it was last Tuesday or Wednesday. And it was thinking back to the truly iconic meeting of the world's greatest black athletes in 1967 in Cleveland to show support for Muhammad Ali, who had refused to his the draft papers that would have sent him to fight in Vietnam. And I just had this daydream of this press conference that was held and the photos of that. I mean, the video of the press conference is amazing as well, but the photos are just stunning. Uh, We're talking about Bill Russell, the greatest champion we know in any sport, player, coach, just, again, one of my been one of my heroes for a really long time uh, unmistakably black man sitting next to jim brown possibly the greatest football player ever nfl player running back just peerless sitting next to muhammad ali greatest of all time sitting next to then known as his his birth name lou Cinder before he converted to Islam and changed it to Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and behind them eight other black men, black athletes all showing support. This isn't the first time that black athletes had gotten together to support one another for a cause but this was really the catalyst of the biggest, the LeBrons and the Patrick Mahomes and the Steph Currys and the run on down the list of all the greatest black athletes you can think of today this was that in 1967 but this was jarring because it happened in the middle of the civil rights movement and had really never been done to any relative size or impact in these men not just there to show support for ali but really what came from this was the social activism the civil rights activism this was a launching Board for them and for more athletes. This gathering, the imagery from it, the meaning of it, inspired so many athletes of color to speak up, refuse to be held down or marginalized, whether it was speaking on racism, inequality, etc. This 1967 meeting in Cleveland, the Cleveland Summit pivotal in our American history. And so I had this daydream of that, that came to mind. And then in the little, this daydream maybe lasted three seconds, four seconds. I don't know. I had this vision of it being recreated today with Joseph Newgarden and Dale Earnhardt Jr. and Jimmy Johnson and Ryan Eversley, and Jordan Taylor, and Ty Dillon, and a number of other white 
race car drivers. Racing has never been there for any social anything. It's never been there. We've always been absent. There are reasons why. Right? The financial composition of our sport, it's unlike any of the others. Uh, we're all marketeers and brand representatives. So it's a lot harder for the average race car driver to speak up and speak out knowing that they have some form of corporate paymaster uh, who might not agree with such bold stances. So I understand the reason why, not giving it a pass, just saying I understand. Um, But I had this daydream of the Cleveland Summit, but held in 2020, right now, in reaction to George Floyd's murder and the most popular white race car drivers across, you know, uh, Graham Rahal was there, Courtney Force was there, NHRA, IMSA, IndyCar, NASCAR, you name it, white race car drivers with the biggest legions of followers to unite and to say we are going to come together spanning all major American racing series and work together We're going to find ways to raise money and donate it to causes that help our black and brown brothers and sisters. We're going to suggest ways to volunteer your time or your services. But we're going to not just unite and hold a press conference, but mobilize. Be a part of the solution, because that's the one thing African Americans have been saying forever. We're not going to solve this problem on our own. By the numbers, percentage-wise, we are a small slice of America. If this is going to get solved, this is going to require all of us and our white brothers and sisters, please join us. It's part of the beauty of what we've seen taking place over the last two weeks. So thinking about this is daydream. That's what came to mind. Thinking about the most powerful and influential white race car drivers, possibly with fan bases and or audiences in whatever racing series they might be in, that could learn a thing or two or benefit from messages in activism centered around removing police brutality from our lives and racism and systematic inequality, so many other things. That's the daydream that I had. And then, again, at the end of this quick thing that flashed through my mind, as I came out of it and came to reality, I said, well, but why does that have to be a recreation? Why does that have to be... Why can't that be an actual thing? Why can't Jimmy Johnson, Joseph Newgarden, Graham Rahal, Ryan Hunter Ray, Kevin Harvick, the Bush brothers, etc., 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 why can't they? Why wouldn't they want to come together if what they've shown with posting black squares and posting statements, impassioned statements, what I believe to be true heartfelt statements in support of 
black and brown Americans and looking at this video assembled independently by Jimmy Johnson with his fellow NASCAR drivers, looking at those things and saying, huh, I wonder if there's a willingness, uh, a new willingness, willingness we've never seen before to turn words, heartfelt words into real action. So that's what I'm trying to figure out in the background. Um, Called one of the IndyCar drivers I've mentioned twice, no response. Uh, Through a friend, I have reached out to one or two of the NASCAR drivers that I've mentioned, and this is still just super formative stuff. It may go nowhere. And if it ends up happening, I this is just going to be a secret between all of us. But I want to see if there's something real that could happen here where the top motor racing drivers in this country, the most popular ones, the ones who look just like me, might actually come together to do some serious, serious good. And I know how motivated these drivers can be. How many have some form of supporting wounded warriors type effort, supporting first responders, supporting families in need, those experiencing hunger, food insecurity, Um, all the way down to, and I say this, and it's not, uh, I guess I am making light of it a little bit, but down to supporting charities where money is being taken in for animal cancer research. Y'all know we've got two cats. They're crazy as hell and in our lives, if not in the middle of the podcast, all the time. So when I say this, it's not as if I'm saying I don't care, believe that there is value in using motor racing as a platform to attract donations and awareness towards cat and dog cancer and to fund research for cures. But I will tell you that if there is a willingness to put effort into gathering money to research animal cancer, but there's no willingness to go and fundraise to cut out this country's 400-year-long shame, the cancer of racism and bigotry and brutality that continues to play out every single day. That's the thing I want to find out. Who all's in? Is anybody in? I hope. But not just one series, but those with the biggest voices, the biggest platforms. You think you guys might want to come together like the Cleveland Summit in 1967 on pretty much the same exact topic, but do something that actually helps your fellow American live and change lives and create a truly better, happier world. 
So that's what I'm going to see if I can make happen. Because I can't do it on my own. My little voice here is just that it's very little. So I want to see if I can get those with the biggest voices who have demonstrated a pretty awesome willingness to step out of or step out of the shadows and into the light and embrace things that can't be fully in all of their comfort zones. It seems like something, uh, I don't know that of all the things these drivers might achieve in their careers with championships and brickyard, Daytona, Indy, whatever, 500 victories. (sighs) Yeah. This is the kind of stuff where you go, okay, you might be a hall of famer in your sport, but the things you were doing to help your fellow American, that's life hall of fame. So, Keep y'all updated to see if this thing goes anywhere or if it goes absolutely nowhere. So we're going to pivot off of that by starting with your questions. And I need to take another sip of coffee here. Uh, That Starbucks espresso roast with the sugar-free French vanilla creamer. That's my jam, y'all. We're going to go to, as we have, speaking of jams, we have our little... uh, fade in fade out music to transition into your q a here uh some of you ask what band that is i truly don't know it's just a music bed that i really liked and bought and here we go uh we're gonna start with our pal joshua ponce this is okay seriously scott dixon winning at texas is awesome and also the last time the season open on an oval was homestead in 2008 but seriously that card's so much speed i'm still trying to process it Sending prayers for you and your wife. Well, thank you, Josh. Yeah, that thing was uh, that thing was a little hot rod, wasn't it? Tell you though, without the rear tire vibration slash sounds like alignment issue that blighted New Garden and Pagano's ability to run towards the front. Uh, don't think Dixie would have had as much of a uh, an easy cruise. I doubt anyone was going to beat him. I just don't think he was going to look that adult in a track full of children type. Holy cow, what is going on here? Let's go to Sean Lee. says, was it the track, the lack of practice, or the aero package that made it more of a parade than a race? Uh, since the race was late in the day and there's already a few adult beverages in, I don't have the best memory. <laughs> but it seemed that the camera didn't really pick up daily kicking ass as much as the first three spots. Uh, Sean closes by saying, P.S. didn't even notice or care about the arrow screen. Well, we're going to get into this in just a sec. Uh, that would have been the track surface, Sean. Uh, it wasn't the lack of practice or arrow package or anything else related to decisions IndyCar made. It was the quality of track surface that the folks, good folks, at Texas Motor Speedway offered. And it was, to use a French term, garbage. So that was that. Uh, As for daily, yeah. uh, Would say that... Realize that it's 200 laps. You know, what do you call it? Hour and a half, two hours worth of racing. There's 24 cars. A lot of things going on, so you're not always going to pick up every theme developing. Just sharing this, assuming that many of you already do it, but 
maybe you don't. Uh, if you have the ability to watch your IndyCar racing, probably almost any form of racing, actually, in a dual screen capacity, if you happen to be someone sitting on a couch at home, watching it on the big screen and have a tablet or your phone or whatever, or your iPad plus your phone, whatever it is, pulling up IndyCars, timing and scoring and watching that is often very helpful just to try and track some of the Connor Daly type subplots that maybe aren't panning out in front of you. And if there are some of you who are really hardcore and really want to do that and aren't or have been wondering how, shoot me a direct message because I have uh, I have a link or two I can send your way that will help but these are not public links that are meant to be shared. So, yeah, uh, there are some cool race knowledge devices, just little things that good folks have done uh, with software at various URLs that, again, uh, I'm sure some of you already have them and use them, but for those that don't and really do want that two or three screen option, of watching, you know, live lap chart and timing and scoring and whatever, whatever. Um, there's some tools here that might expand your, your ability to pick out the themes as they are happening. And just as I get feedback every day about the work I produce, both, hey, that's awesome, and B, man, you suck even worse than I ever thought was possible. You know, there's nothing wrong with being an in-race reporter, right? Hey, I'm looking at the screens here at home and i see that driver x is really doing something and no one seems to be picking that up at name whatever it is racing series or broadcaster or whomever you know at least if you're seeing it and you realize that there's enough time of the broadcast for someone to maybe view these things because they quite often are paying attention yeah you can maybe uh steer the broadcast in your direction a little bit Got three questions here. Michael Steenblick, Bobby Rooney, and Duncan Idaho 11 on the PJ1 Traction Compound, um, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so run through these. Uh, Michael says, why was the NASCAR compound not removed, or is it there for good? What a joke that was, Bobby Rooney. Does anyone research whether the Traction Compound has ruined the track for IndyCar for the long term, or whether it should be fine next year? Uh, would have been a really entertaining race if people could have passed, but it was brutal. Uh, and then also Duncan closes with what's the story behind the traction compound at Texas. And was it a factor in Colton's mid range? I think you, did you mean mid race performance? Uh, last year he went high a lot last year. Um, all right. So we do have something unique with us in IndyCar. It's that our cars are light they have wide tires, and they make a lot of downforce. And we can actually dial up or down the downforce pretty much to suit our desires. So what that means is the vehicles we use are capable of going around any and all sections of the track at Texas. I'm not saying that Stock cars can't, but they're heavy. Their tires aren't as wide. 
they certainly don't make much downforce by comparison. The low line, which gets rubbered in pretty heavily, uh, ends up being a really commonly used tool. As we saw here, and I don't know whether it was the track that decided or NASCAR or they worked together and came to this decision, but uh, at least if we go back to the last instance of this PJ1 goo, traction goo, uh, this was applied to the track for the, I think it was the November 3rd cup race in 2019 and it was applied and it helped provide grip for these big, heavy, undertired, way, you know, minimal downforce cars to be able to sling around the top side safely and comfortably. Um, also, again, one of the things, too, is in the absence of cars running around, say, the top ring all the way around, uh, you're not going to get rubber put down. So this also is a bit of a, a quick fix in that regard. We don't really need that. Uh, it's just not a need. Uh, our cars can make enough downforce to do it on their own. Uh, as I was told, um, and this is from people who told me on background, so I'm not naming them, but let's just say, man, do they know a lot about tires, like a whole bunch about tires. They might be the biggest experts in the paddock. Um, (laughs) There was an effort to remove whatever amount of the PJ1 goo from the upper lanes prior to the IndyCar race. And as I'm told, it's not uncommon practice of dragging tires behind a vehicle to do that. Um, Again, it's not totally foreign concept here. And that, I believe, is exactly what was done. So I don't know the longevity of that PJ1 goo. Again, I'm just going to keep calling it the NASCAR goo. I don't know the longevity of it. Right. You know, you, you is it does it last a week? Does it last a month? I don't know, but I, I'm not sure what the I'm not sure what it was like before the IndyCar showed up. Was it tacky? Was it gummy? Was it bouncy, springy? I don't know. But I do know that there was an effort and made and successfully achieved to remove whatever residue existed on what we saw were the upper, the black uh, portions of the circuit. Um, As I was told, again, from folks 100% in the know, possibly from dragging tires behind uh, vehicles to remove the goo, uh, it's very possible that those tires, not necessarily fresh new racing rubber, might have left behind a lot of call it dead rubber residue. And so what we have here as it adds up in my mind. So please don't take this as being fact. This is just it's what I've been told by experts. And so I'm just leaning on that faith is that in the effort to remove the goo, the method used to remove the goo actually laid down kind of slick dead rubber that when our drivers drove upon it 
it made their cars go kaboom into the wall or slide or cause them to have code browns while chasing cars up the track and trying to keep them out of the wall. So what we have was a creation of this black rubbered in outer lanes, the black parts because it was rubber, (laughs) right? I mean, that's actual rubber causing a lot of rubber causing that coloration um that rubber itself did the opposite of grabbing hold of the firestone tires as they rolled across and so yeah i don't think it's a case bobby of ruining the track for indycar long term uh, I know what at Phoenix when we were there the last year was at 2018. They had the tire dragon, where they what is it the machine that had the four to five Firestone tires um, being buried into the ground, you know, scraped into the ground to put down fresh rubber on the higher lanes to try and give drivers an opportunity to use them. Maybe that's the play here uh when we go back i'm not totally sure but i can tell you that the drivers that i spoke with and what it was like driving up there all said you know brutal worst marbles ever like driving on ice just yeah so obviously texas motor speedway um and hopefully we'll get to your final element here duncan in a sec but texas motor speedway obviously did not try and do anything negative here I just don't know if they fully grasped the effects of what they were doing. So my overall takeaway here is not a day. I don't know, maybe a week before. I'm not sure what the perfect timing is before next year's race at Texas. There needs to be, well, well before the race, there needs to be a meeting between Texas Motor Speedway and Firestone and ideas thrown around, tested, and something come up with so that when we do go racing, we can use the whole track as we have before and have something real. Because, yes, Saturday night's deal, it was far less awesome than it should have been. Uh, A lot of folks have said awesome was just nowhere to be found. So there's a little bit of sarcasm there on my part. But uh, this is something where the biggest experts are within the IndyCar paddock on this topic. And I would just say that noting the failure that just took place, there needs to be really, really close collaboration. Uh, And those experts being brought in long before the race. Uh, Maybe it's a Zoom teleconference. I don't know. But something to say, hey, y'all come here and race with different tires, different cars, different everything. We kind of pooped the bed in 2020. We don't want to do that again. How can we lean on your expertise to fix this? Is there something we can do to the track to fix this ahead of time? What can we do? Let's get y'all involved. Uh, The last quick note here, Duncan, you were mentioned about Colton Herta going super quickly last year by going high. Uh, I'm not aware of Traction Compound having anything to do with that. All right. Ross Porter. Hey, Ross. Says, MP, 
I thought the one-day compressed schedule was actually quite entertaining to follow throughout the day. What were your thoughts? I will say I was disappointed that the tight schedule led to Takuma Sato missing the race. And let's see, our man Lance Snyder. Lance, just like Ross and the rest of you, thanks for being awesome. Seriously. Uh, Lance says, with the crew going through, with the race crews going through a brutal day, are there going to be different plans at future races so the crews are not subject to that kind of schedule? So starting with Ross, I love events like this where, and I'll always preach this, you don't get to practice, you don't get to prepare for the big test as much as you want to. And so the test results are far more varied. Uh, if you think, that's how I always think of this stuff. I don't know why, but I always have. I always think of practice as studying for a test. Uh, just maybe going back to all the tests I failed in grade school, junior high, high school, um, even college a little bit. Um, I think of the Friday, two practice sessions, Saturday morning, another practice session. I think of those as all test preparation. Qualifying is, you know, I don't even really throw qualifying into that uh, mix, but if you get to practice over and over and over again, in theory, the vast majority of the students are all going to get high grades because you've been given so much time to study. Uh, And so that's why at too many races, we have doesn't matter what team doesn't matter what engine doesn't almost doesn't matter what driver they all finish very close to one another this is at most races oval and road and street courses there's not a lot of separation that's because everyone had so much time to study that how could you not get b pluses at minimum to a minus if not a's everyone's in that b plus to a plus range well of course you should be and for those who aren't you go dude <laughs> did you fall asleep where you was did you have a, a rager last night and you just stumbled in just class what's going on so that's the kind of anarchy related brilliance ross that i love of these one day type events or really compressed events or when we have rain interrupting things drastically and throwing everyone's everything that you've studied just completely out the window. So that's why I really liked this. And as I wrote on racer today, not a fan of burning out the mechanics and, and over the wall crew members, as Lance rightly noted here, there were a number of folks that fell out a number, one of them on pre-grid fainted fell out heat exhaustion and a, far too many who went to medical after the race to get fluids and be looked after and these again these are all folks who were cranking for nearly 24 hours straight Ugh. so i do love this ross but i do also think that you know ambient conditions need to be factored in uh, could there be a little bit more downtime? You know, if we're talking the a one-day oval event, for example, and it's going to be a night race, even if it's going to be a double-header oval, back-to-back night races, whatever, cool. 
maybe we try and start a little bit earlier so that the one practice session is done earlier and then we roll into qualifying not too far behind that and then give teams a bigger window between the end of qualifying and the start of the race so that genuinely they can go inside go into the transporters where the air condition conditioner is on and catch a nap or again whatever it is but just breaks there need to be some significant breaks so that we don't have a repeat we do not need indycar crews truly taking a face plant because they've just been overwhelmed by exhaustion uh, and heat and yada 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 so but yeah ross i'm telling you the things where not everybody gets to study enough that's where we get fun things like hey look whoa looks like new garden's gonna be the one he's on pole he's gonna run away oh hey hey whoa hey now he's going backwards what's going oh and pagino well he's having the same thing now granted i realize they recovered to second and third but you know that's where you start to get the zach veach yeah man <laughs> dude you're a beast all day finished fourth love it who did anybody expect that be the lead dog at a six car Andretti Autosport team? No, but he was, and it wasn't a fluke. He's brilliant. You look at Connor Daly again, finishing sixth for Carlin, right? I mean, come on. In a normal event, you go, all right, so it's going to be Penske, 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 Ganassi, Ganassi, Andretti, Andretti, maybe a third Andretti. All right, well, that. Puts the top non-Andretti Penske Ganassi car eighth, maybe ninth, something like that. Heck no. Ed Carpenter up there in fifth, running solo for most of the race. So, yeah, that's why I love stuff like this, Ross. We just get the stuff where you go, all right, that wasn't what we expected. And it's not a coincidence. It's truly not a coincidence. The less test prep they get to do the more varied the results on those tests. And I think it makes for really compelling stories, minus crew falling over. Uh, Let's go to our man, Thomas Gross. says, will we see a change to the impound rules for the next race? It seems that three guys had the races ruined by the fact that the IndyCar, that IndyCar implemented special rules. Um, Hmm. Well, and we also have one from Bobby Rooney here. Uh, I'll get to your aspect of this in a sec. All depends, Thomas, of what they're going to do at upcoming rounds, right? We go to this one-day Indianapolis Motor Speedway event. Uh, we know that Road America is now a doubleheader, followed up by Iowa doubleheader, followed up by Mid-Ohio, but we don't know what Mid-Ohio is going to be. I kind of doubt it's going to be a one-day thing. I'm guessing it would be a two-day, if not three. Uh, I don't know exactly how Iowa's going to play out. Uh, Road America, the same. Uh, So we will have to wait and see, as my Weekend Sports Cars co-host Graham Goodwin likes to say. We're going to have to hashtag wait and see, because we just don't know. But the impound thing, I'm guessing, would probably be done again at Indianapolis knowing that it is just a quick in and out uh, there. I would think 
that there would be pretty smart reaction to the ECU problems that were experienced that I wrote about, uh, caught up with HPD this morning, and uh, they outlined what took place there. Uh, the spec McLaren ECUs, and these aren't Honda spec, these are IndyCar spec. They're in every IndyCar, Chevy or Honda. Um, those are known, I mean, <laughs> no disrespect to McLaren, but yeah, both manufacturers have never been happy. A lot of glitches, a lot of problems, and one of the known issues is sometimes the suckers just go into shutdown mode. And because of the impound rules and an agreement to limit the number of personnel on pre-grid, uh, both Chevy and Honda agreed to not do the thing they always do, normally do, which is have the engine tech attached to each entry be there with the car. Uh, and if needed, plug in and send the calibration file, the cal file. And if by chance it doesn't want to fire, ECU goes into shutdown mode, Chevy or Honda. Uh, have your engine tech there, plug in with their laptop. Send, resend that cal file tends to override, wipe out, whatever you want to call it, uh, reset things from the shutdown standpoint and tends to fire right up. Well, with this impound rule, uh, those folks weren't allowed on the grid. And in order for them to step in and do the thing they normally do, it came with a penalty because it violated the impound rules where you can't touch the, that was not part of the agreed upon things you could do to prepare for the race teams could make front wing adjustments tire pressure adjustments uh radiator shutter adjustments for cooling and such uh, you know put in a fresh radio slash radio battery i think put in a fresh car battery you know there's like very limited but just the true basics of like okay can't touch the car can't really do anything other than like i said they allowed tire pressure changes that's normal uh front wing adjustment okay uh but really the rest are all just the things you'd normally do to a car going into a race nothing more though it was a specified list that all teams were given these are the things you can do and if you don't see the thing written down saying you can do it you can't it was a very simple, wasn't even a full page. It was like a half page of, of items that I saw. And so plugging into the car was not included. and uh, Or having an engine tech plug into the car was not included. Uh, taking the bodywork off, as we saw some of the teams do, to try and check and see and physically inspect the ECU. Had something come undone? Is that the reason why? Those are the absolute normal things you would do in that situation. Um, just in impound rule, that's not allowed. Can't take anything off, put anything on, um, other than what I mentioned. So penalties. So yeah, I would think Thomas, owing to this known ECU glitch that can strike anybody that has, here's the other thing. It's happened. I don't know how many times in IndyCar races since this new engine formula started. On the grid, it's happened dozens of times. I don't, again, I don't know what the number is, but it's happened plenty. I know that for a fact, but we never hear about it because engine tech from either brand sees that they're trying to fire the car and it won't fire, and he goes, oh, boop, connect, 
tap, tap, download, fires right up. We never see it because it's resolved almost instantly. I would have to imagine that IndyCar will adjust the impound list, getting ready for the race to include tappity-tap, laptop, engine tech, dude or dudette to be there in case they're needed. Bobby Rooney, given all the variables, you say of the COVID shutdown, traveling that morning, first race, one-day event, do you think the series should have tried to make some allowance to delay a bit and keep the three cars from not, uh, from not starting on time? Uh, I know there are rules and a TV window, but feels like it should have been the right scenario to try and help teams. Yeah, that, that's always the thing, Bobby, is, you know, admittedly, it's kind of in your, your final sense here. When you say, I know there are rules and a TV window, and you throw in a comma and you throw in the word but, uh, everything after the comma kind of doesn't excuse reality, and that is, hey, yeah, the rules as written really didn't take this into account. I don't know if IndyCar truly grasped the glitch shutdown ECU problem as much as they should have, but if you consider the fact that this was being broadcast on NBC, big NBC, with a tight start window. Right, they had the whole pre-race, half hour of it on NBCSN. You cut over to NBC, and it felt like within three minutes or four minutes, cars are rolling, and off we go. Um, those are the rules, and there was a TV window. So, you know, the thing you don't want to crack open even when it feels so right. And I've probably in the past said in some instance, oh, you should have just ignored the rules or the TV window. So I'm not, this is, trust me, Bobby, I've said the same thing. I can guarantee you um, more than once in the past about something I'm forgetting. You crack this thing open and where do you stop? You know, you can always find justifications, excuses for not doing the thing not applying the rules well you know uh boy that's a small team and they're really they're really you know close to having a big breakthrough result and they're short on sponsors and man if they could get on the podium here it might save them and boy they just we're keeping folks in work uh, employed and it's all great yeah and i know their driver just ran over an air hose and hit a tire leaving pit lane but they're running so well again uh, maybe we'll just look the other way you can almost explain away just about everything if you want to so i hear you um i would say the three team the three entries that were affected would definitely have appreciated indycar being lenient here alexander rossi who I think we all expected or still expect probably to be a big factor in the championship. Uh, Yeah, that guy is now starting his championship bid from way in the hole. Coming out of race one, uh, sitting that far back. I mean, that's uh, that is not exactly the happiest and most friendly thing. Um, for anyone to consider, granted, you know, him coming out uh, of round one in 15th place, you know, if, if we dial things back to, what, 2018, 
um, where he ended up finishing, what was it, second in the championship. Um, you know, he had a, a very good start to the season. Uh, things got rolling for a while. He had a couple of poor-ish finishes, you know, what I think like a 15th or 16th somewhere uh, around the middle of the season. Um, last year, you know, what he finished, again, off the top of my head, third-ish, third, I believe, yeah, behind Pagano. And, ooh, I mean, he had two or three races that were just terrible in terms of points haul. Uh, so... You know, you get a couple of those per season. Him starting way, way down the list from where we expected to open the year. That's not great, <laughs> obviously. But this isn't necessarily going to derail his ability to w- vie for the championship. It just means that with only 14 races, who knows if one or more might get taken off the list for whatever reason. But at least with the 14 we know of that are coming... You know, he just burned one or two of his mulligans. He just, yeah, burned one or two. You look at Graham Rahal in 17th. I mean, that's, that's, I, boy, that is, that's going to be hard for them to overcome. Um, you know, Will Power down in 13th as well, had a bad day at Texas. You know, that, that is, although this isn't a word, that's overcomable. <laughs> but he's going to have to have, you know, pretty strong rest of the year that's the thing that's the part where you go okay what what does texas mean for the expected title contenders who had bad days in a 14 race season with one race down 13 left to go and no double points at the season finale rossi cannot afford to have more than one day one additional day like this uh, or his title ambitions are going to be really, really hampered. Uh, Graham, whatever year that he was hoping to have, same kind of scenario. Power, you know, he's going to have to have some really strong runs. So that's that's kind of the big thing that I'm taking out of this. Uh, Bobby, I mean, it sucked. I wish that, you know, everything went well and everyone would have just turned a blind eye and got everything fixed and everyone could have started the season uh, on equal footing on the same lap uh, or without being penalized at the end of the first lap kind of thing, like the three here. But, you know, they can't overcome this. It certainly wasn't their fault, right? But when you have a tire blow or a gearbox failure or who knows electronics failure in this case um refueling error those aren't the driver's fault same exact same blameless scenario but indeed it does affect their season let's go to our man (laughs) ryan terpstra appreciate you ryan uh says do you attribute all the pit lane problems to a lack of practice he says, Will Power, Santino Ferrucci, Alexander Rossi, Marcus Erickson, James Hinchcliffe, and now I'm forgetting a bunch more. It was not a clean night on pit lane. No, it was not. I do think fatigue really did just play a role. Ryan, uh, normally you're doing two to three pit stops. They did six to seven, uh, maybe more. Um, just part of this long day, baking in multiple layers and 95-degree heat plus 
face masks and helmets and, 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 and yeah, uh, I just think that we push folks to the edge and beyond. And there were some teams and I think uh, Dixon's team had a slow one slow pit stop with a tire that did not go on swiftly. But other than that, you know, they all stayed hydrated. They all stayed pretty darn sharp. They were super quick. You know, there were a number of teams that had no issues, but there were some that had their fair share. I think Hinch had a stuck wheel nut. I mean, just, you know, through no fault of his own, the guy just is sitting on pit lane as a mechanical issue is ruining his day. Uh, Erickson, uh, I think there was a stop where they didn't get fuel into the car. I think it might have been towards the end. Um, kind of sort of ruined his day. Not that they wanted to. That's just what happened. Uh, Ferrucci, yeah, looks like just an error. And then mechanical damage caused once they kind of sort of tried to get it fixed. Power, same thing. Didn't get the wheel on the car. I mean, this was... I would suggest, Ryan, that in normal times, if this was a two-day event uh, pre-Corolla virus, or even if they just said, hey, we're just going to do a normal two-day event, I and everyone, you know, practice on Friday and qualify on Friday evening, and then you can't even get into the track until 12 o'clock on Saturday, which is a normal thing, like everything's locked down, just can't get in. Uh, and everyone had to stay in the hotel and stay cool and rest and so on and recover. I don't think we're seeing, you know, 80% of the things that we saw. I don't think they happen. So very situational as I interpreted it. And also, you know, from the, the texting that I did with uh, chief mechanics and uh, team manager types, there was a pretty good feeling that, yeah, this was a very extraordinary evening. Um, don't hold too much of it against anybody. Let's go to Daniel Ingleton. Daniel, I'm not sure if I am recalling your name from submitting past questions. So if you haven't, thank you. And if you have, <laughs> well, I refer to this as my unpolished turd of a show because I'm an idiot and, uh, yeah, I should do better. And we also have a one from here from our man, Christian Denevsky, on the topic of lap drivers on restarts. Uh, we'll start with Daniel. Uh, he says, Marshall, since when has the rule where drivers being lapped do not uh, need to move aside for the greater uh, leader's need? Uh, where has that fallen into previously? Where is the rule uh, in not needing to be applied? Um, well... There is a rule. I did inquire with IndyCar race director Kyle Novak. Good guy. Very good guy. Appreciative of him as well. Said, hey, we do have a number of questions here on lap drivers. Will power being one of them? Scott Dixon spent an entire stint behind power. and uh, Lost a big lead. Uh, he spent a lot of time behind Alexander Rossi, who I think was two laps down. Uh, and lost a lot of time there. And there are other drivers, whether they were, you know, vying for the win or not, who were you know, losing opportunities to move forward because they were stuck behind lap cars that were not going super slow. And as it was explained to me, and this, again, it's not uncommon knowledge, 
Uh, IndyCar has a 105% pace rule that says as long as the driver in front of you, the driver that is lapped is maintaining a speed that's within 105% of the leader, uh, there's nothing to black flag. There's nothing to move people aside for because they're going very quickly. Now, I do know that there were one or two drivers. Jack Harvey's name was mentioned uh, as someone who, I mean, Jack really, on his first trip to Texas, was not loving it. Uh, there are some laps there where Jack was certainly not necessarily within that 105, but um, would just say that, yeah, it did seem a little bit odd, especially owing to the fact, Daniel, that we did have a one-groove, one-lane racetrack in the corners at least. And we do know that a lot of passing takes place entering turn one, entering turn three. And to do that, you really need to be able to get a run coming out of either turn two or turn four. And that did happen from time to time. But since the black ice lanes really prevented the faster drivers from getting aggressive, getting up onto that black ice on corner exit to get a run, um, we had a situation where for far too many laps, far too many leaders, leading drivers were forced to just sit behind a lapped car in the corners and really make passing attempts heading into turn three and turn one way harder than it should have been. That was the track without the track being a problem, Daniel. I'd say the lap drivers really wouldn't have been as much of an issue. Uh, if the Dixons and the whomevers could have taken high lines and did over-unders and you name it, uh, they would have gone forward a lot faster. So, uh, yeah, that 105% rule, though, that's the thing. So as long as the Powers and Rossies were going swiftly, which they were, they were doing nothing wrong to lead IndyCar to act. Christian, your question of any explanation as to why lap cars were not moved for the final restart. That's a question that I asked Kyle as well. And he said, within the last 15 laps, when we have a caution, it is at our discretion as to whether we will take the time to shuffle the order of cars to move the lap cars behind the leaders. And with the crash taking place on what i think rosenquist crash was like one lap 190 ish 191 whatever it was uh yeah so we had you know nine ten laps to go and in the time that it took to clean up the crash uh that burned what five laps to six laps and we went green there were four green laps to close the race just looking up at how it played out, I would say that Kyle and company made the right decision to not take the time to shuffle those cars because I don't know how many laps, if any laps of green, would have been left. And so the decision to just clean up the crash and get back to racing and not go through burning a couple of laps, having cars move here and there, because, again, it's not like... Well, they look through data. They There's a whole procedure of how they do this to then get it right before they instruct driver of car such and such, move back here or accelerate or go around, whatever. 
very easily could have ended the race under yellow, and I think that would have really left folks uh, in a rather unsavory frame of mind. So in this instance, Christian, I'd say IndyCar's race control folks nailed it. Just absolutely uh, nailed it. So um, let's see. Where do we go we go to Nick Dovniak. Hey, Nick. Says, who was the biggest surprise, Zach Veach or the Foyt team? Um, and uh, my pal, John Wojnar, who I'm just calling John Ranjow because I can't really pronounce your last name. MP, what are your thoughts on Baby Yoda Veach and Chuck Kimball's strong runs? So same thing from you two. Man, I was really bummed for good old Charlie Murphy as Dario Franchitti and Scott Dixon nicknamed Charlie Kimball when he was their Chip Ganassi racing teammate. Charlie Murphy. He, boy, that was awesome, wasn't it? What ended up happening, uh, as I understand, and I texted with uh, Chuck as well, just to say, hey, dude, nice job, man. Um, bit of a fuel calculation error. And so, I mean, that that's just a really... And I've done that before. <laughs> I've gotten the fuel numbers wrong and kind of ruined a really good race for our team. I'm trying to remember where that was. I did that. I've done it twice. Oh, you want to talk about feeling like the smallest person in the world? It's the best diet ever. Oh, I guess I should go back to IndyCar and mess it up because I'd feel like I was, you know, and. 10 pounds um just got it wrong simply got the fuel calculations wrong thought that we could go longer than we could on our tank and ran us out i think i did that once in 1998 with greg ray and i think i did that once in 2001 with the sam schmidt team and it was all it was listen to me like almost trying to defend myself here i screwed up so that's the thing there's no argument against that that's a fact in both cases the shade of explanation i was going to offer though is in both instances it was not a case of complete ineptitude of just not knowing of like well what do you mean we ran out of fuel driver uh i believe we should have x more it was uh, i think we can stretch it and do something here i think we can i think this might give us an opportunity an advantage i think we can push yeah i I think i think we're good enough to go an extra lap kind of thing and then you look at your telemetry and where you once seconds before had all kinds of colors of bars and graphs and this is and that's happening and dials and you name it oh a flurry of activity uh they all go away <laughs> because the motor's not on and the electronics are kind of not doing a whole bunch for you and yeah you might yeah you got wheel speed because you're still rolling and you got a few other th- i mean there are other things but you know nonetheless um you just see a lot of things go that's what happened with chuck uh they got the fuel calculation wrong charlie ended up having to make a final pit stop and then get called back in 
again, I forget the exact number, five, six, seven laps later to make another pit stop. And so it just ruined his race. And then he crashed on the final lap. So, yeah. Uh, Knowing the quality of the Andretti team, the proven quality of the Andretti team, Nick and John, I would say Zach's performance was not a surprise because the vehicular quality is well known. He had to go drive it. His race engineer, who's a freaking rock star in training, Mark Bryant, those two did some amazing work and were super fast all day long. So give them full credit. But we also know the quality of an Andretti car is much higher than a Foyt car. Foyt team is trying to get there. They have clearly made strides to get closer. But we know one is definitely dealing with an advantage the other is not so for that and no disrespect to my pal baby yoda veach uh i would say charlie's holy poop look at that run with uh mike Pawlowski working with him for the first time i believe as his race engineer yeah all right you know fuel calculation error on the timing stand whatever you know it it uh, it can happen, and the crash, I felt really bad for Charlie about that, but he still finished 11th. <laughs> think about think about some of the drivers who did not crash or run out of, basically run out of fuel and ran the whole race and finished behind him. So, yeah, um, I just love that. I felt so happy for Chuck and things going well there, and it wasn't a luck thing. Like, the guy was truly running crazy strong, Top five really looked like that was uh, going to be something that he could bank on. All right, let's get uh, cranking through some more of your questions. Uh, let me see where we're at on the good old clockety clock. Eh, all right, we're just a little bit past an hour and ten, it looks like, overall. Let's go to Chapin 17. By the way, Chapin 17, I've come to en- genuinely enjoy your questions. Uh, they're, they've actually brought some additional fun to the show uh, and john ranjo as well has a question here um on renus vk uh i was so excited about indycar coming back both before and after the race that i decided to fracture my elbow on sunday see that is real fandom you're like you know uh, i'm gonna hit a wall of my own uh, i was just wondering how much we should put into ed carpenter's comments after the race about renus vk Obviously, it wasn't a great weekend for Enos. and wasn't very pleased after what was a great run for him. How long do you think it will take for Renus to build up Ed's trust in him again? John also says, I don't know if you saw, uh, saw them. Can I get your thoughts on Ed Carpenter's sponginess? Post-trace comments on Renus. Uh, have there been other drivers in the past who struggled with sponginess? And is sponginess a new phrase for the podcast? It definitely is, John. If Renus is a sponge, does that make Ed Carpenter, Squidward, and Connor Daly Patrick? Look at that. We are going well under the sea uh, with some uh, some men with pants that are square. Uh, as always, big prayers for you and your wife, your pal, John Ranjo. Thank you, John. And Chapin17. So the sponginess. Yeah, that's Ed. I love Ed. Truly, I love Ed. The guy is just, I don't ever want him to retire. He just brings something to the paddock that no one else does. Um, he's really direct. He's got a great sense of humor. It's crazy. It's like his sense of humor needs 
like a lot of lotion. It's so chapped. It's so dry, but I love it. It's I couldn't ask for more. Uh, the sponginess. Yeah. So <laughs> Renus, as Ed was trying to tell us, is really in that place as a rookie who, yeah, I know that you got some oval experience on the road to Indy presented by Cooper Tires. But again, this is big boy stuff. Expecting you to be a sponge here, kid. Of all the people for Renus to have as his oval professor, he's got Ed freaking Carpenter, right? Like, <laughs> you could not ask for better. This is the guy that if you could sign up for his class for one-on-one tutoring, like the line would be out the door. Holy crap. You get to learn the art of oval racing from one of this generation's supreme talents, not just on the wheel-to-wheel racing side, but also the strategy and mindset, the approach, the chassis setup side, right? Uh, If we're thinking of modern era in that role, I'm not saying Ed Carpenter is Rick Mears, but he reminds me of the rocket in that sense of like, wow, sage advice, so proven, so knowledgeable, just a bank, a bank of wisdom. And so you could see Ed's frustration, which was expressed in sponginess terms of like, man, all you gotta do is listen to me. Do you don't have to do anything else. I'm just, I'm telling you, you don't have to think you don't have just, just be a sponge. Just listen. I'll tell you, I'll give you the whole playbook of how to do this and kick ass. And so I told you the things to do the basics, the, the indie car oval racing one oh one first day of school. I gave you that homework and you know what, man, you ripped it up and flipped me the the philosophical bird and did nothing of what I asked. So, to get to uh, the two questions here, Chapin17 on rebuilding Ed's trust in him uh, and John on the sponginess, and it's definitely, we need to just include sponginess in the podcast whenever we can. Two things come to mind. When can he rebuild his trust? Well, we're talking about Iowa as the first real opportunity starting in mid-July. We would expect Renus to go to the Speedway and the road course here in a month or so and Road America and be really fast. That's the kid's natural environment. He's so good. And, yeah, so I expect Renus to impress and for folks to, by and large, forget his very not great IndyCar debut at Texas. But if I'm Ed, I am, I'm not even thinking about the next couple of races with Renus in this regard of trust. It's when we get back to Iowa. Now, Ed, because he's a father and because he's a good businessman and a very good teammate, is going to be trying to coach up Renus mentally. Don't let this tear you down, right? You know, you're going to listen next time, aren't you? Got to keep his head in the right place because you don't want this. He does have, Renus, that is, almost a month to sit and stew and let this eat away at his nerves and confidence. And you just, 
that's not going to help anyone. So Ed can play an important role here. So really the trust question, Chapman, that's going to only come to Ed on ovals because Ed's going to know, well, I expect you to be fast in the road street courses. That's your thing. One other quick item to throw in, and this is where Ed has some leverage. So we know that Renus is able to bring some funding. I'm not told that it's a ton. The sponsor on the side of the car at Texas, as I recall, was Sonax Car Care items uh that is family money that being holman george carpenter family that being tony george owns the distributorship as my uh my pal jaron in holland shared with me and pointed me towards uh that's tony george right so that's a primary sponsor in the car for the debut race here that is from the team. So the team's spending money for this kid to be in the car. I don't know how much money, but I can just tell you that that's another thing that adds to the, hey, if you are truly just paying 100% for this and you wanted to drive like you had no sense at all, I mean, we're not going to have a long relationship. But in theory, you're paying for it. So since you're paying the full bill and crash damage, uh, if you want to do it, I mean, we can't stop you up to you well when the team is contributing the funds to make that car go round and for a driver to have a career to do these things you actually with that financial investment you buy a pretty significant voice in how that driver behaves or doesn't behave so beyond ed being amazing sage oval wizard and team dad and teammate and all those things there's also the, hey, that's our money, too, that you're chucking into the wall. Stop it. It's not just you. It's us. So uh, I, I am confident the kid is going to get the message. And I think there's going to be a lot of yes sirs and pleases and no sirs and may eyes when we get to Iowa. Uh, let's go to Robbie Bergeron. Hey, Robbie says, Marshall, was there really debris in the track, or was that an excuse to send the sweepers out to try and give a second groove a chance? Yeah, I don't know. I do know that it seemed a little odd. Uh, I do know that you aren't the only person who asked whether that was a real caution or not. I have no insight about that whatsoever. So I wanted to read your question because multiple people pose similar things. Hey, that seemed like a NASCAR caution, was it? I don't know. Uh, and I, of the limited time that I've had or made, uh, it's not one that I've tried to pursue because as Juan Montoya is fond of saying, it is what it is. It was what it was. It's done. And yeah, um, Robbie is also back with another question. Do you have an idea on how the drivers felt the venting for the aero screen performed? He saw, I saw in one shot of Pato Ward that the hose had come disconnected from his helmet. I don't know if it was a common problem after the race or if any other issues were brought forward. I'm going to try and do a good old word story about this, Robbie, here in the next day or two. Um, just want to get IndyCar's thoughts on the aero screen and how it performed from their perspective and expectations. I know in the drivers that I have conversed with, borderline, in terms of cooling, 
especially under yellow, like really borderline. Granted, we're talking what might be end up being the hottest day an IndyCar race is held all year long. So this was an extreme. And in that extreme, it was described as borderline. Um, the hose side, right now it's totally wide open. Teams are allowed to use whatever connection method they want. Curious if that's going to become a standardized thing so that the flailing hose syndrome doesn't happen. Um, and so everybody, you know, a best solution is determined, and everyone said, hey, just use that. Um, the one thing that I heard as well is with the air scoop on the side of the aero screen plus the vents at the base of the aero screen coming right into the driver's face, uh, there's a lot of debris and dust and sand and tire marbles and whatever and getting into both, into the helmet, into the driver's face. And, um, yeah, not totally sure what was the bigger contributor. I'm guessing it would have been the hose and ducting connected to the helmet because that's something brand new as the police are going by here, apparently in aero screens being stolen. Um, did I mention you guys that all the windows are boarded up downstairs still? And we've had protests going on here. Peaceful, thankfully, so far. Uh, this is something where I think it might have been what was getting blown into the top of the helmets and a lot of the dust and particles in ways that were never done before. Because if we think the last race they did without aero screens, you certainly would have had such things kind of blowing in their face with, you know, directly at the helmet. But... Uh, there weren't a lot of points of access for it to get into the driver's face. Here I'm wondering if the cooling vents, uh, the cooling system and ducting placed atop the helmets, uh, having a lot of this crap force-fed into it is now what is having this stuff kind of sprinkle on top of their head and down their faces uh, in ways that it's not super good. So um wondering if there needs to be some sort of filter <laughs> behold putting a stretching a piece of pantyhose in front of the opening kind of thing uh, another thing that i thought of too is do they need to have some form of uh fan circular fan in the line attached so that if by chance during a yellow at whatever track going around at slow speeds if it's hot and there's not much of a ram air effect that, frankly, just like cooling fans on a radiator, it is something that can be activated by the driver to force uh, higher speed air into the helmet to keep them cool under caution. So, tell you, Robbie, I think the overall execution for race one was surprising in how well it went. Uh, there were some glare issues. There were, you know, we're, again, we're talking about some of the issues here. Heat was too high, some glare stuff. There was a lot of debris and crap getting into the helmets that wasn't before. There are some things to improve, but I didn't really hear of any show stoppers. The temperature certainly still needs to be addressed in keeping things cooler. Also, did you note, and I don't have the answer why, the nostrils on the cars uh, went away. Were not allowed to be used at Texas. Um, 
yeah so again all stuff i'm hoping to learn about here in a conversation with the series let's go to our pal simon Rafi. how you doing simon says, what explanation is there for the large gap between Texas on June 6th and the Indy GP in July 4? After all these months of waiting, I would have thought they could fit in at least one race during that period. Or are there negotiations going on for another race in June? I think this one's pretty easy to answer, Simon. And it's that Texas is the only state that had an IndyCar race on the schedule in June that said, yes, you can go back to racing. Uh, There was meant to be, what, two additional races in June, both Road America in Wisconsin on, what was it, June 21st or so, uh, followed up the following weekend by the return to Richmond. Well, Wisconsin and Virginia are in the no, you're not going racing yet category. So... Really simple answer as to why there's a big gap. Texas is the outlier of being the first one to say, yep, go racing here, while other states where the races are scheduled have said no. Uh, so that's why we've had Road America moved from third week of June to, what, second week of July, because based on Wisconsin's statewide reopening plan, that falls into a window where they can go racing. Uh, And Richmond was lost altogether because they have been very hardcore as a state about remaining closed. So, yeah, this is just truly about state permission. Uh, And as for adding something else, I don't know where. Again, it all has to be based on permissions. And uh, this is just what it is, man. This is rolling with the punches. Lance Snyder again says, MP, did you get any feedback from various series on your article about independent photographers being banned by IndyCar and NASCAR? Uh, Yeah, actually, I got almost an instant text from Greg Gill, who is the CEO of the series formerly known as World Challenge, to say, uh, that's not us, in the article or the opinion piece I just wrote that IMSA and World Challenge have not weighed in with their plan. So they're unknown. So that's why I didn't really get the knives out for them. And world challenge reached out right away and said, yeah, uh, no, as long as you're a professional photographer with a photo assignment agency, independent, whatever, we don't care, nor have we ever cared uh, as long as you're a pro and you are supposed to be here, submit your credential request and off we go. Have heard IMSA will be announcing their plans this week. Um, with their first race coming up on July 4th as well at Daytona International Speedway. I've heard that there could be uh, something in their plan that would make independent photographers pretty happy. We'll see. On the NASCAR side, again, I'm I'm not someone who's really embedded in NASCAR. I don't think they know I exist or care. Um, IndyCar side, I know that ongoing questions were posed including race week heading into Texas. And every time was told, nope, not going to happen. And, you know, but there's a willingness to revisit for the next race and future races. So again, we'll see. I hope uh, wiser heads emerge before we force uh, American artists 
into bankruptcy. So, <laughs> yeah, I hope something happens there. I did hear from a lot of photographers and, you know, who all said kind things or appreciative things. And uh, none of that was expected. Very, it was nice. It was appreciated. But that's the luxury that I have, Lance. A couple of them. I specialize in sports reporting in a relatively niche area. It's not NBA. It's not big, big. Oh, boy, man, you are really, uh, there is a bright spotlight shining on you in what you do reporting on this major series. I mean, I can, as a big NBA fan, like I can name pretty much all the major reporters because they're all on TV, uh, it seems, and they're all, you know, big, big parts of what of the sport analysis insights you name it not just type in the words but actually you know they're they're in our homes through televisions and tablets and whatever all the time that's not really the case with what i do i mean i know that i got this podcast and i do videos but whatever but you know there there's a recognition here that you know me being one of like three or four full-time IndyCar reporters left on the planet, you know, I realize that if I'm going to get grumpy and barky about something, A, it better be worth <laughs> worth it. B, it better not be off base. And C, uh, I know that it's going to be read by the folks that are being barked at and they're not going to like it. So, I mean, I know all that stuff ahead of time. It's not a surprise. It's another way of saying, Lance, if I'm going to stab myself or cut myself, which is what these type of articles kind of sort of happen to be, just make sure you're drawing your own blood um, for something that you believe in and believe might affect positive change. Um, this did not. And it wasn't just written as a, well, I'm going to write this and they're going to change because I wrote it. I didn't expect that at all. I do believe that reporters, even for something as niche and inconsequential as what I do, and that's I, that's said in a genuine capacity, not like self-deprecating, like, look, man, I cover freaking oval racing with open-wheel cars and road racing with open-wheel cars and sports cars. Like, <laughs> you don't get a lot more obscure than that. Um, but even so, I do believe, man, I don't differentiate in my mind of what I do from any other reporter. If you see something that you believe is wrong or an injustice or a disservice or whatever, uh, part of being a reporter is being willing to stand up and say, hey, that thing over there. Pardon my French. That's shitty. That's wrong. What you're doing is wrong. And it doesn't take, you know, this isn't just some crazy out of left field view that I've taken. This is clearly wrong. Even in the super obscure segment of sports that I happen to cover, like, I believe you still got to do your job. That's part of my job. No different than writing a race report or a personality feature or whatever. Like, hey, if someone's doing something shitty and shady, pull back the cover. Let everyone know about it. Uh, 
I also happen to know that this was brought to their attention before anything was written. It was like, all right, well, if you still, if you know about this and you've still chosen not to do the right thing, cool. Um, let's just make sure everyone knows. Uh, let, let's not keep this a secret. So uh, that's why I love waking up and reading the New York Times and the Washington Post to see some really, you know, some real reporters doing their job of highlighting the good, amplifying the good, but also pulling back the covers on the nonsense. So I mention all this, Lance, because the independent photographers uh, that I wrote about, of whom I know all and consider the vast majority to be my superiors in terms of photographic talent. I mean, I'm a professional photographer as well and independent, but it's well down the list of things that would be considered my primary duties for my clients. Um, I know all of them and whether it's knowing them well on a personal level or just knowing their work and yeah, (laughs) These are artists, true artists. Like, wow, do not extinguish this beautiful thing that we have. Um, But they're not really in positions to get on the old microphone and call out the bad decisions and the unfair practices being levied upon them. So that's what a writer does. And so, you know, I was just happy to do that on their behalf. And it was just nice to hear back from some of them unexpected, but yeah. So last quick thing here, Lance, and this is just bizarre. I said this to racer magazine founder and owner, Paul Fanner mentioned this to Robin Miller. I wrote that it was just a passion piece, right? When I get pissed off about something, I, I don't, that, that thing just, was written quickly. It was very easy to write, just came right out. Um, That's a rarity. I thought if we're just talking social media shares, since that's a little number and metric you can see on Racer, you know, even the most non-story story, even just the most average, normal grist of the mill thing about, hey, a driver said a thing. Uh, Here's an interview with somebody um, you know, those generate a hundred, 200, maybe 300 social media shares. And I'm thinking if this opinion piece gets more than 200 shares, I will be shocked. It is so inside baseball. It makes like, again, no one's going to care. No one's going to care. It's like the second most shared story on racer in maybe ever (laughs) or third (laughs) no idea why i truly have no idea why lance is such a niche crazy small little thing but for whatever reason i guess it resonated with folks so sadly didn't resonate with the folks who make the decisions because nothing changed let's go to cp goat from reddit i love reddit screen names by the way been rewatching the 2011 season and forgot how much I love the double file restarts. 
took some getting used to for the drivers to botch it, uh, to not botch it, but they got there. Any chance the new regime would bring this back? Sure, would have helped the ending of Saturday's race, along with following the lapped car procedure. Chad from Maine. Hey there, Chad. I would say no. Uh... We had a lot of experimentation when Randy Bernard was IndyCar CEO from double file restarts to double headers to you name it. Yeah, I cannot think of anything within a Roger Penske or Jay Fry that is about, hey, let's try some of the old gimmicky things. Um, just don't see it. Uh, I'm not saying it wouldn't merit reconsideration. I just don't see the new regime getting behind it uh emerson d'agostino emerson i might not be remembering your name from past questions and if so i apologize and as well if this is your first time thanks man Uh, it was great to see the texas uh was in general a good race there were no big ones in terms of crashes however when i tried looking for the race nbc had preempted it with mike dewine talking about covid19 Emerson goes on to say, hashtag me personally, the official hashtag of the Marshall Report podcast. This is a very bad decision when a vast amount of potential fans could have seen the race, but were not able to. Just want to let NBC know our displeasure with what happened. Also says, Godspeed to you and your wife. Thanks, man. I heard this from a couple folks, Emerson, of the, hey, in my area, and I don't know where you live, but, you know, in my region, uh, the race was preempted with something else. And so maybe the rating, which was good, but not great, really wasn't great. Um, Maybe could have been a lot better, but I don't, I don't know how the the local affiliate thing works, right? It's not like NBC says everybody must run what we put on at all times. I mean, clearly there's local station owners and the latitude and decisions making they have. I don't know. Was part of this whatever number of local NBC affiliate saying in the IndyCar on a Saturday night, the beginning of June? Yeah, no thanks. Uh, we're going to do this at this time slot instead. I mean, 8 o'clock Eastern? Yeah. I'm super happy that NBC chose to do that. That's great. Seriously, it's great. But there's also the autonomy, maybe, that... I don't know if it was fully factored into things that maybe there were going to be some dissenting voices that said, nah, we're good. (laughs) We're going to, I guess, have Mike DeWine, whoever that is, talking about COVID-19 or who knows what else might have been shown. But know that the rating could have been higher. That is for sure. Uh, Let's see. What else am I going to do here? I think we've got one, two, three, four, five, yes. Got six questions left. All right. Well, I'm going to exhale a little bit here. So we're almost at an hour 45-ish. So hopefully we're going to stay kind of sort of within the two hours or so that I'd hoped. Uh, one more sip of the old coffee at 9.28 p.m. Mrs. Pruitt, by the way, is taking a well-deserved shower and bath. She pushed so hard today in physical therapy. So proud of her. Like, for real. Um, That's my girl. Uh, We're going to go to 
Matt Anderson. Matt, I love you. You know why? You only use one T for your first name. That's a man of efficiency right there. Uh, Matt, man of efficiency. Sounds like some sort of detective show on the Science Channel. Uh, it says, Marshall, following up on the discussion about the cancellation of Indie Lights for this year, says you mentioned that it looks like IndyCar was going to be putting pressure on IndyCar teams to get involved with lights. Is your understanding that they are wanting them to field teams and subsidize the cost for drivers to participate in the series or simply field teams for paying drivers like Andretti Autosport does? Matt goes on to say, if it's the latter, how would that help the series with more entries if the current demand for entries for paying drivers isn't there already? Uh, All it would seem to do would shift from independent teams uh, to IndyCar development teams and put the small teams out of business. I don't have a solid answer for you yet, Matt, because I've only heard about this from a couple of folks and some didn't want to divulge what they had learned or heard. Um, So I think we might be looking at a little bit of both. I think we might be looking at the, hey, IndyCar Team X, you should really consider linking up with Indy Lights Team X. IndyCar Team Z, you should link up with Lights Team Z and forge relationships between existing, call it big team, little team, and then you have your affiliate program in the pipeline. Knowing that the the attractiveness of Andretti Autosport as the only IndyCar team competing in lights far outweighs what the other three Indy lights teams can offer. It's a thing. It's really a thing. You know, the Andretti team has almost half of the full-time entries on the grid in in the Indy lights. Obviously there's some other things too. It's a well-known team, Indy 500 winning championship winning in IndyCar. Big names, you know, there's a lot of provenance, pedigree, all those things. Super well known for its business to business development, overall marketing and business development skills. There's a lot of things going on there that any young driver's father, uh, connected driver with family money or somehow sponsor money, There's a reason to go to Andretti Autosport over the others. It's not because, again, there's nothing negative like the other teams are bad or deficient. No, 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 no. It's the, and your son and your daughter, by signing on with our Indy Lights team, will be connected to the Andretti Autosport IndyCar pipeline and will come and be on the timing stand at maybe not all, but a number of IndyCar races and be in the debrief sessions and be groomed in the big leagues while racing in and learning in Indy Lights. That's, (laughs) that is nuts, right? If we're thinking of a thing to offer, hey, so if little Johnny goes to our university and plays football, We have this connection with Kansas City Chiefs and 
I'm forgetting the name of major universities in and around Kansas City, so I apologize. But if you go to Kansas City University (laughs) with us and play football for four years in college or however many years in college, well, that whole time you're going to be able to, if little Johnny's a quarterback, be able to sit in on the QB sessions with the QB coach next to Patrick Mahomes and you're going to be able to run drills and you're going to be able to be here and there and be a full immersion in the place you're trying to get. We can't guarantee you're going to get there, but if you come to our university, we have all these doors to open for you that frankly no one else can because they don't have that link directly to the NFL. Well, this is where that value could come in with exclusive auto sport with Bellardi auto racing uh, with the, why am I always forgetting their team name? The Malukas team. Um, The ability to say, Hey, we're linked up with Chip Ganassi racing team Penske, Ed Carpenter racing, so on and so forth. And we can do the same things. You sign with us and your son, your daughter, is going to be able to sit in on those engineering meetings and build relationships with some of the IndyCar drivers. And don't bug them, but if you got a question for, name whomever it is, Alexander Rossi, um, he'd probably be able to help you kind of thing at whatever one of those teams. Um, you know, this is that's a crazy value just from straight-up linkage, Matt. So that, I think, is one key and keen area. The other one could also be that why don't you start your own team? Come on, do this. Group, you know, this is a also a business thing to consider as well. We've seen a number, not a lot, but we've seen a number of young drivers with sponsors on the lights, the road to Indy level, who are able to groom them to move up to IndyCar. And all of a sudden the team is benefiting from that. It's one of the reasons Andretti Autosport does this as well. So I don't foresee the putting the small teams out of business uh, thing happening, Matt, because this has been going on forever. (laughs) Did you know that, what was it, 1989, Chip Ganassi Racing, might have been 1990, had an Indy Lights team? You know, I think Joe Stamola ran it. But still, like, you know, these things have happened forever. Roger Penske Jr. was a Super V driver back in the day. Uh, Tony George raced in Indy Lights and Super V. I realize these aren't necessarily teams, but I'm just saying like the big names, big teams associated with lights and whatnot or similar ladder series. It's been going on as long as we've had ladder series. Um, So, yeah, I don't see wiping out the the existing Indy Lights paddock. Uh, What I would rather see... You know, honestly, are those links and bonds? Uh, and then maybe that leads to co-entries for the Indy 500, like Lardy has done, and I know Exclusive Autosport wants to do, and so on and so forth. So I think we might be looking at both, Matt. At minimum, I think the link part would be the easiest one to pull off. It would certainly cost, right? The These IndyCar teams aren't just going to say, sure, come do it f- for free. But I think that might be an easier sell than... Go invest in cars, personnel, 
and all that and start something from the ground up. Who says that some of these IndyCar teams could not straight up hire some of the existing teams to do that for them, uh, to go beyond just having that link, uh, engineering and development links. So there you go. Uh, Matt Philpot. Hey, Matt. This is Marshall. Do you think IndyCar would ever consider putting an asterisk next to the 2020 season champion's name, especially if there are additional races lost from the schedule? Interesting one, Matt. I guess the question I would throw back to you, which is a complete and total fail on my part because you're not on the other end of the line, what leads you to ponder this? Because if you're pondering it, probably means you're thinking maybe it should be a case of an asterisk season. Um, how's this? Obviously, the duration of some of the races are totally different. I think all but two of IMSA's WeatherTech Sports Car Championship races are longer than IndyCar races. They obviously have a 24-hour and a 12-hour, a 6 and a 10. So they spend a lot of time on track during their season. But keep in mind that even prior to the coronavirus and IMSA having a, a shortened or compacted schedule if we just go to a normal year i think the weather tech championship what i think half the class half of their four classes do something like 10 races and the other do 11 so again i realize we're talking a difference in mileage but we are just talking straight up races right however long it is it, it counts as one race and points are awarded for that one race just again whether it's 100 minutes at Detroit or 24 hours at Daytona. It's still a single race. Uh, They award championships to those who complete 10 races. So whether IndyCar normally has 16, 17, 18 or whatever, and it looks like it's going to be about 14 or so this year, I, I can't think of a reason why any kind of asterisk would be needed. Uh, I seem to recall not too many years ago. I think it was 15 rounds or so. Maybe that was mid-2010s, earlier 2010s, something like that. But, um, you know, the fact that it's going to be 14 races, yeah, uh, that seems like a pretty good number to me, man. And it's certainly more than IMSA hands out uh, or does and awards their champions. So uh, no one questions the validity of the those champs if this was truly half a schedule if we were talking we're down to eight races maybe nine but eight if it was numerically about 50 percent you might consider such a thing but the fact that at least right now it's scheduled to be 14 only three off of what it was going to be um i can't think of a reason matt So maybe you need to share with me why you think it might. Four to go, our man Ryan Terpstra. So now non-IndyCar sites are reporting Ferrari has talked to Penske. I find it noteworthy none of the regular IndyCar reporters have written about that. Well, that's good. It's noteworthy. 
my spirit vegetable of a listener. Yeah. When I spoke with Jay Fry about this a couple of weeks ago, I did my absolute best to get an answer. Just a yes or no. Have conversations been held? And for the life of me, could not get anything. I just wanted to be able to say it has happened or it hasn't happened. Roger saying that it has happened. Maybe it's a new development after Jay and I spoke. Um, okay. I don't know if it was Ferrari reaching out to IndyCar or vice versa. Hey, we heard you want to talk. Again, I love the idea of Ferrari coming here. Who doesn't? It'd be amazing. It'd be the one of the biggest things that happened to IndyCar in my lifetime. Adult lifetime. I just don't have any real faith in this. So maybe I'm not doing a good job as a reporter by not tracking this and staying on top of all the developments. Uh, I can just tell you that in those that I've spoken with uh, on the Formula One side, they just see it as nothing more than BS and posturing. So Ferrari is the crying wolf champion of motor racing. (laughs) That's just what they are. Maybe that's changed. Maybe we will look back in hindsight and say, geez, you, Pruitt, and name whatever other IndyCar reporters just, boy, did you fail 5,000 times over by not taking this seriously and not writing about it, and it happened, and look, you're all completely wrong. That may happen. I hope that happens because it would mean something great for IndyCar took place. Just none of it adds up to me right now as being real. So I'm not applying my coverage time to it. So, again, hope I'm wrong. I'd love for you and everyone else to do happy ha-ha pointing you're a moron dances when Ferrari announces they're coming in. That'd be the best thing. Because, A, I don't care. People do that kind of normally. But um, I'd love to be wrong. Man, I wish I'd be wrong. I, I'm... Be an awesome thing. Kevin Kerner, MP, making up for my brain fart earlier. I'll submit this. When Firestone came back to open-wheel racing in 1995, didn't take them long to absolutely dominate Goodyear in both CART and the IRL. Hard to believe that only five seasons later, Goodyear would be totally out of the sport. Uh, that they dominated for a couple decades prior. What, in your opinion, compared to someone else's opinion, Kevin, was the chief reason for that? What was the X factor? Was it just a case of Goodyear just resting on their laurels, or was it, is it just that Firestone was and is just that much better? Well, a lot of the things you mentioned are the reasons. I, I'm trying to think. Was there a year in my good old Earl career where I worked with Goodyear? I don't know why. I th- I'm thinking there might have been one, but I th- I'm also thinking I could have been wrong. Um, 
never really worked with Goodyear. Even if there was a year where it did happen and I'm forgetting it, uh, never really was a thing. Um, I, by chance, worked with Firestone for a really long time, as did others working in Indy Lights, and got to know them, Joe Barbieri in particular, and Paige Mater, um, and then Al Spire a little bit, and just a lot of, like seriously, a lot of great folks. And their Firestone Indy Lights tires were really good. And they brought they brought a level of engineering uh, aggression to a spec series with a spec tire that really stood out, Kev. It's not always common where you get that. You know, sometimes you get the, well, hey, you know, it's, we're not going to go nuts here, right? It's all the same cars, same in, same engine, same chassis. So, you know, like, well, there's no need for us to really go overboard here with our tires. They did. Just always trying to make it better. A um, lot of engineering resources. A lot of smart folks trying to be crazy helpful for getting the best out of them. And it was just the culture that stood out. I really when they decided to go back to IndyCar, and that was announced, they had to, you know, really ramp up and, and flesh out a whole competition department to a much higher level than what they'd been doing in lights and elsewhere. Um, and it was just the culture that stood out that was evident in Indy lights. Like, oh, yeah, <laughs> they might not, you know, the modern Firestone has no knowledge of IndyCar, right? This is all way back in the, the Bobby Unser and, you know, whatever type days, way back in the day of uh, the tire wars in the early, through the early to mid-70s and such. Um, they just clearly had the culture that it was no doubt that they are going to succeed. And I have meant almost no knowledge of Goodyear in terms of the, I mean, I know the, some of the names, but like actual relationships and how they worked and what they did, like, I can't offer that. I can just tell you what I saw on the Firestone side, and it struck me as like, oh, yeah. Oh, Goodyear's, Goodyear's going to be in trouble here soon. And as soon as some more cart teams move over to the Firestones, this is going to get ugly. Um, and what? I think it was Ganassi. Um, yeah, Ganassi in 96. That package there. Uh, the Renard... Firestone Honda, uh, just that started Goodyear's decline, and in cart for the most part, uh, Goodyear's were done, just done. Uh, in the good old IRL Firestones, we having known them and worked with them forever in lights. We were an Indy Lights team, the Genoa Racing Indy Lights team, moving up to the IRL. Um, it had just made sense. These these are the people we knew and trusted and so we said yeah got to work with you and turned out to be the absolute correct call now granted you know of course there were wins and championships captured by teams on good years uh so you know uh, it was what it was but it really did become clear that as the more of the the cart approach was applied to the irl that hardcore hardcore approach um, you just absolutely had the balance tipped 
in Firestone's favor. And I think the year was 2000 uh, at Indy, where Goodyear really made their last, it was their last Hail Mary. And they introduced, I believe it was, I don't know if it was rear tires, but I know it was front tires that were something like an inch shorter than what they had had before in an inch shorter height-wise from the Firestones. So they, I mean, it was a big thing they did to reduce the frontal area of the car, reduce the aerodynamic wake, the turbulence, the drag. I mean, they made smaller tires that cut through the air better. And the Firestones were still better. So, you know, just... I did get the feeling that it wasn't necessarily a money thing. Like, oh, well, Firestone Bridgestone's just pouring in tons more than Goodyear and they have no chance. It Again, I'm just talk I can only talk from one side of the the war. It just felt like one side wanted it more than the other and the other side eventually just gave up. And so that's what they did. And that's why no one has tried to take them on, Kev. Because, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, that would be brutal. Two to go. Paul Trahan. Hey, Paul. MP, Detective Bosch loves to give people a hard time. This comes from me mentioning last week I finished watching the latest season of Bosch on Amazon Prime, a show that I quite like. Uh, Bosch loves to give people a hard time. Which IndyCar driver do you think Bosch would give a hard time to? If I had to pick one, who would Bosch go after who would Bosch enjoy just needling nonstop in the IndyCar paddock because he does it because he wants to get a rise and prove a point doesn't necessarily want the other person to say yes and agree he likes to kind of unload a little bit and let the person feel his wrath and really be dressed down who would I choose that for in the IndyCar paddock I would have to say Connor Daly. And not because Connor has done anything wrong, but because Connor would start yelling back at him. And Connor, look, he is the son of an Irishman. Those balls are mighty brass. Uh, he's super smart. He is His wit is so quick. That would be the best 45 minute long interaction ever because they would just tear each other to shreds but i don't think bosch would win the argument i i think it'd be connor i think bosch would just walk away like just you know sliced and diced all right last question here derek bardashek i asked you to send this back in i need to tab over and go to the interwebs and type in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Should I tell you, in the Prude household, there's a pretty constant and unresolved argument over the pronunciation of the word ninja. I say ninja, obviously, because that's how you've heard me say it. My wife, ninja, nin. Not nin, as I say it, but nin. Granted, she's also a pretty big Nine Inch Nails fan, Nin. So I wonder if there's a link there. But, oh, she just just gets mad at me. It's not Ninja. It's Ninja. And I'll say, like, well, I don't think so. Oh, yeah. 
Like it just I could do it right now. If she was here, I could say the word ninja. Shut up. It's ninja. It's kind of funny. I might actually just say ninja at times just to get a rise out of her because, you know, who doesn't like getting smacked upside the head, uh, being smacked by your wife. So your question here, Derek, reposting from last week is requested. Indie car drivers as Ninja Turtles. Who do you cast as each turtle? I'll start by casting Hinch as Michelangelo. So we're closing with this. Why? Because we are. So I had to look this up, Derek, because I truly did not remember the name of the four Ninja Turtles. Now, I should mention, and I really do wish I still had it, back as a kind of, sort of, preteen, barely teen, uh, I used to collect comic books, love comic books. Uh, and, you know, there was a real, like, collector value angle to it as well. And by chance, I happened to see the very first issue of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles show up on the bookshelves at, I forget the name of the comic book store in the little town I grew up in of Belmont. Uh, it was owned by this guy named Tibor, Tibor Sardi. He was such an awesome dude. Um, I just happened to see it and total by chance and saw it and was like, whoa, well, that's like crazy. I got to get that. And so bought it. And within a couple of years, granted, I think I stopped collecting comic books at that point, but just recall that it really blew up into a thing. And I remembered like, oh, well, I have the very first issue of this and it turned out to be like really significantly valuable and then i don't remember what happened to any of them i don't know if i threw them away or got tired of them whatever it was i had it and yeah so i mean granted i'm not buying a house with it or a car if i did hold on to it but i was by sheer coincidence a teenage mutant ninja turtle fan because it came out first it was originating as a comic book and happened to just see it so there you go that means nothing but hey most of what i say means nothing so who uh as i look here trying to find the main characters oh okay so we have leonardo michelangelo donatello and Raphael. uh i'm look i just am admitting this i don't remember any of it from back in the day uh i think i saw the first of the movies that came out a couple years ago, you know, it's just the worst, but it was, you know, enjoyable, terrible. Um, I still don't remember the characteristics. So I'm just raising my hand here to close a show that I have the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Wikipedia page open, because that's the only way I'm going to answer your question. So you said Michelangelo, the most stereotypical teenager of the team. Michelangelo is a free-spirited, relaxed, goofy jokester known for his love of pizza and kind-hearted. That's a good fit for Hinch. So you've taken one of the three, and I agree. Let's go with Leonardo, the tactical, level-headed, courageous leader and devout student of his sensei. Leonardo wears a blue mask and wields two swords and is the most conscientious of the four. He often bears the burden of responsibility for his brothers. Ha! So tactical, level-headed, I immediately went to Alexander Rossi, courageous leader and devoted student of his sensei. That wouldn't be Renus VK, right? We kind of got to listen to the sensei 
Didn't do that. Uh, we'll skip the two swords. Conscientious bears the burden of responsibility for his brothers. Oh, this one might be a kick in the nuts to try and get correctly here. Bears responsibility, conscientious, big picture, team-wide arc. Oh, where do we go on that one? Hmm, that's a bit of a stumper. Would that be Ed Carpenter? Maybe that's Ed Carpenter. You know? Yeah, I think that might be Ed Car- Like, that sh- actually should have been an easy Ed Carpenter right away, right? Tactical, level-headed, courageous. That's Ed. I don't know about the student, right? I mean, I'm trying to think of anyone that he was, like, really learning from. But maybe, again, I'm sure there's an answer there that I don't know or I'm forgetting. So there's probably that. Um, I don't know if he wears a blue mask or wields two swords. I'll have to ask about that. I don't want to get into his personal life. Conscientious. Yeah, I'd say that's Ed, too. Uh, bears the burden of responsibility for his brothers. Yeah, that's Ed Carpenter. Team-wide. So, yeah, that should have occurred to me right away, Derek. I'm just confirming the fact I'm a moron. All right, two to go. Donatello, the scientist, inventor, engineer, and technological genius. Donatello wears a purple mask and wears a bow. Wields a bow, a staff. Donatello is perhaps the least violent turtle preferring to use his knowledge to solve conflicts, but never defends to hesitate his brothers. All right, scientist, inventor, engineer, and technological gene I us. Huh, who are you guys thinking of? This is the part where I wish the show was live, so uh, y'all could just be, you know, tweeting in or whatevering in, commenting in your thoughts. IndyCar's got a lot of dummies in it, so, you know. <laughs> I'm so glad most drivers don't listen to this. Um, I mean, granted, they're all smart in their own ways. This is just me trying to get myself out of the hole I just dug. But, yeah, um, I think, yeah, there's only one driver that stands out, I mean, truly only one. Inventor, engineer, technological, use knowledge, solve conflicts. I don't know about the defend his brother's part, but everything leading up to that, that t- that's Charlie Kimball, right? I know Jer Hildebrand might have come to mind for some, but again, you know, Jer does one race a year, so I'm going with the full-timers. Uh, that's got to be Chuck, right? Charlie Murphy, for sure. Um, son of a race car engineer, race car designer, uh, you know, if anything, Chuck's kryptonite has been he's too smart, thinks too much. So, yeah, uh, that'd be Chuck for sure. Let's close. Derek, thanks for this. This is, this is a fun exit. Raphael, the team's bad boy. Uh-uh, uh-uh. Raphael wears a red mask. He has an aggressive nature and seldom hesitates to throw the first punch. He's often depicted with a New York accent. His personality can be fierce and sarcastic and oftentimes delivers deadpan humor. Throw the first punch. Ballsy, brassy New York type accent. Personality can be fierce and sarcastic. 
we go. I mean, maybe forget the New York accent part, but just that kind of, you know, bravado, won't back down, throw the first punch in your face a little bit type. Oh, boy. I mean, so many of the drivers I'm looking at right now are just pillow fighters only. Um, I, I mean, I know some of y'all are, might be thinking Will Power because, again, street fighting, we know that about him, but he's not aggressive. You know, he's not the ballsy in your face type so much. Although, again, I guess you could say maybe he was based on his eye racing persona. Who uh, who would like just like get up there and you know start giving you those hands? I yeah. Uh, uh. <laughs> Try, I mean, I really want to give you a good answer here, Derek. And that's why, again, none, you know, Simon Pageant. I love Simon. Come on, man. Come on. Right? Come on. New Garden? Come on. It's too pretty. He's not He's not throwing anything. Um, Again, Daly, I think he could, you know, he wouldn't mind mixing it up. Hunter Ray could, but that's just not as, you know, that's not his personality. I do have a feeling that man could defend himself if he needed to. I'm going to go with two options because they're just what come to there. I think I can't think of one being perfect. So these two stand out that kind of throw the first punch, you know, a little bit in your face, won't back down, whatever. I'm going to go with Colton Herta. And we haven't seen it yet. It hasn't manifested it with him on pit lane, walking down to whomever and trying to deck him. But he's got that in him. And I love it. I mean that that kid again. He weighs about a buck nothing, and that kid is as light in the ass as you are gonna get. But that axiom about size of the fight and the dog—that kid's a scrapper. That kid feels wronged by many at all times. Does he? He is a DGAF all star. Doesn't give. Don't give a. I love that about him. And so, yeah, if we're talking Raphael, aggressive, seldom hesitates to throw that punch. Personality can be fierce. The New York accent, not him, but obviously the Steinbrenner family, even they don't have a New York accent. He, the George Michael doesn't, but still um, love that kid too, by the way. Um, yeah, sarcastic, deadpan humor. I mean, that's Colin Herta, right? That actually, that just might be the one answer. I would say the other one I was going to slot in here, possibly, Oliver Askew. Uh, I think Oliver, and he's not light in the ass. He, he is, what, one of the two biggest kids in the people, drivers in the series, two or three, between himself, Hunter Ray, and Ray Hall. Yeah, um, that kid, that kid is all about freaking iron and steel and sparks and, yeah, um, he is not someone I would want to get into. A, well, I wouldn't mind getting into a crash with him. I, I wouldn't be too concerned about holding myself. But just saying, most drivers would not want to get into a questionable crash with that kid because if you crashed and you went way off in the runoff area and both were okay, but it was, you know, 
behind some bushes and TV cameras couldn't see and he knew no one could see, uh, the other driver might be limping, uh, might need some bandages and get some lumps fixed uh, when they're done. Because, yeah, that kid... That kid doesn't play. That's part of what makes him such a fierce race car driver. So I'd say Colton Herta, all those things, throw the first punch, aggressive, deadpan, sarcastic, like that's actually perfect. So Colton Herta, Derek, I would say is our Raphael Donatello. That would be Charlie Kimball. Michelangelo, you perfectly picked as James of the Hinchcliffe tribe. Ed Carpenter is Leonardo. Now I guess we need our man, Roger Wark, to do up uh, the IndyCar Mutant Ninja Turtles. All right. Uh, We did go, uh, you know, two hours, 20 minutes. It's not bad, really. I would say for the amount of questions that came in, we didn't get to all of them. Got to the most. Got to most. If we didn't get to one you wanted me to answer, send it in again. It's always the offer. But for the first race of the year with a buttload of storylines, uh, the fact that we are getting done here and only having to do one episode instead of two, that makes me super happy. So thank you again. Thanks for getting us to five freaking million downloads. Uh, thanks for keeping the little thing. I'm going to try and see what might happen on the getting our most popular white race car drivers to try and be the agents of change to help uh, in meaningful ways. And I don't remember if I went into this, but you know, the, well, why are you not trying to go after the drivers of color to help? Obviously there aren't many, so that's the first thing, but again, um, all everything I've read since I was a kid from civil rights leaders to what I hear today on ESPN and you name it from star athletes is we need our white brothers and sisters in this fight with us. That's where we make real change. So I'll see what happens there. Please keep that to yourselves because, you know, I don't know why, but that's what I'm asking. I want to say thank you to Cooper Tires. Been with us now. This is our third year together. I've only been doing this for four. Thank you so much, Cooper Tires, for being just, you know, just family. Uh, The Justice Brothers, true family. (laughs) The... Justice family, Ed Justice, Courtney Justice, you name it. Thank you for being, treating us, my wife and I, like your family in this podcast, taking such pride in it. TorontoMotorsports.com, our pal Derek Koska. Uh, Boy, I tell you, he is uh, my Canadian brother. Um, Really appreciate him so much and all the fun things that he thinks of that we end up doing together. Uh, Many of those things hopefully benefit y'all. And then finally... Everyone at Bell Racing Helmets USA just been with us as well since 2018. So uh, I've got four primary partners for the show, and I say thank you to them frequently because loyalty matters, family matters, and I guarantee you there are other sponsors and partners I could go after that are like serious giant brand names, and I'm positive I could land them. It's just not a thing that interests me because I really like working with those who want to be here with us, who love being with you instead of we're just here to try and sell something and really only care about that first and foremost. 
That's not the case with the four partners we have. And that's why I try and lavish as, lavish as much love on them as I can. And why you don't hear 50 commercials breaking up every episode because they're more interested in the experience and being facilitators in what we do and hoping that you honor them and maybe pay tribute to them by participating whatever it is they might do or happen to sell. Uh, But they're here to be part of us first and foremost, not just dry advertisers trying to sell something. Uh, It's not what we do here. It's not your culture that you bring to the show through your questions and participation, and it's certainly not what I'm trying to do. So here at this little 5 million download milestone, man, I am a guy who is so thankful for you and humbled. Look forward to speaking to you next week. And it's 10.09, and it's time to go get dinner ready for Mr. and Mrs. Pruitt.